0: Hello and welcome back to the Brothers Book Club podcast. We're here today with a book club episode, not our most common show, at least not for now, but we're back Amanda with a book club. Are you excited to dive deep? I am. For listeners just tuning in to their First episode ever. As always, you are quite welcome here. A book club episode is an analytical deep dive episode where we go into an entire text, whether it's a novel or collection of something. Or we've done some nonfiction on here, some essays and such. But it is going to consider the entire work. So for today's book club, which for which we've chosen the Good Lord Bird, a novel from 2017-18. Hey, it's
1: kind of recent. Twenty.
0: 13? 13, okay. The 2010s for sure. Definitely recent contemporary stuff here by James McBride. Uh, That is the novel we'll be covering today. If you are completely unbothered by spoilers, then feel free to join us in this discussion and continue on. If you've read the novel, then you are 100% in the right place, because we're here to talk about it in its entirety. Everything is fair game, including extra textual things. We usually end the book clubs by pulling some outside criticism or reviews or whatnot, so we're going to do that today. Amanda, anything on the novel before we just dive right in here?
1: Um, I don't think so. I think that it's a great book. It was a National Book Award winner, so you know it's got to be pretty good.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess we should mention that too, and say it explicitly, this is the second to last book in our 2020 collection of book clubs focusing on Black American writers and African American experience. This was inspired by a lot of the social upheaval that happened this summer and still continues to happen in different places, in different forms, perhaps not the same form as some protests that happened. So inspired by those movements and Black Lives Matter protests and things, we decided to contribute a book club a month dedicated to authors who write about that experience. And we've chosen some, I think, pretty great ones so far. I don't... have we really missed? Oh, the... Well, <laughs> I didn't even think about it. It's like I I blacked it out in my memory. Oh,
1: know, I was got, gonna say know. it, and I was like, he'll come to it.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it was like a void or something I filled with other other knowledge. It's that thing, and you you want to be able to customize your brain storage, and I did with something else. I'm gonna I'm actually not gonna say the title. I'm gonna say we we've done a lot of amazing stuff. You should go listen to those old book club episodes. They'll be up on the feed forever as long as we run this thing because they're they are good forever. You can always read a new book and go check out a discussion. So. So those will be there. Today, though, on the agenda is The Good Lord Bird, again by James McBride, a novel firmly about slavery and abolition and the movement around abolition before the Civil War really kicked off. And so it's kind of, it largely features John Brown. It's really kind of a John Brown novel in a way, and so kind of builds up his myth a bit. We will begin with our favorite highlight. Is that what we're calling it, our highlight?
1: Well, we kind of... I, I named it highlight, but really we were going for yeah. more of the um, of your grandfather's mo- in memoriam. Again. Oh,
0: yeah. what's The What's Good About It segment, this is taken from our book review episodes, but it's basically spiritually the same. It's like, what was one great thing that this work accomplished? Amanda, why don't you start us off with your highlight for the novel, The Good Lord Bird?
1: Sure. I said uh, that for this novel, you had mentioned that it is um, about John Brown, and it is... But also, it's very much about the main character, um, Onion. And what I really loved about it was just the development of Onion's character throughout this story. I thought that this was his characterization of Onion. And and our journey with Onion is just really well done and and beautifully written.
0: Yeah, it has quite applicable – not applicable – i was gonna say pick apartable which means we're recording late folks what is the (laughs) word segmented it's it has parts that are easily recognizable i suppose it has certain things that other buildings ramon stories do pretty well this one takes a lot of those parts and does them uh, quite well i would agree with that i also isolated something around that character onion uh, the narrator as well the voice is incredibly potent uh there in the reviews and the criticism that we were looking up to for this episode to fill in the back half a lot of mark twain comparisons and i think that got brought up when he was you know um given the national book award and the critical aim at him was kind of making that comparison to twain's voice and writing style mm-hmm. yeah it's got a heavy sense of dialect and place and time and it just works incredibly well it it makes dense things rather readable It presents things that are otherwise kind of complicated and messy with a certain twang, we can say. Um, And it just all came together in really quite a perfect way. There were some weird lapses that I noticed, and I think a couple anachronisms that... I'm not even gonna bother to point out there were some strange moments where I thought like is that a did they would they have used that term, that slang word, but ninety nine percent of it works just pretty seamlessly. And for someone who's not, you know, frequently reading things in the voice of an uneducated person in eighteen sixty, it all sounded fine to me. I mean it seemed legit, as they would say. Yeah. Yeah, so pretty impressive feat there, at least in my mind too. Let's move to our blanks then. Book clubs, we like to begin with a fill in the blanks prompt that just generates some early discussion about what we read, be it a story or you know, essay, nonfiction, poetry, whatever. Do you want to start with the blanks this week, Amanda, or should I?
1: Um either way is fine with me. What?
0: Deferential. Alright. Fair enough. I'm I... gonna put it on, I'm gonna put it on you then. This is what you get for not choosing. <laughs> And I respect it, but that means you're going first. You did write the prompt, though, and hilariously, this sometimes happens because we often plan our contributions to the pod and fill in our outline separately. Actually, we basically always do that. You and I came up with the same blank, and we only use one anyway. So when I saw it, I just laughed and thought, yeah, okay, that's perfect. we we just going to do the same one. So it fits. (laughs) It is, and you That's wrote perfect. this, but it is, if I had a good luck bobble, it would be blank because blank. So why don't you take it away, Amanda, for your own prompt?
1: Sure. And it's going to sound like such a, a cop-out, but my reasoning for it is is pretty valid. Um, so if I had a mm-hmm. good luck bobble, it would be my daughter.
0: Um, <laughs> She's not a bobble. She's a <laughs> real young lady. Like
1: Onion is also John Brown's good luck bobble in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I would say my daughter, because of, well, many things. She's my daughter, and I love her so much. But um, when she was born, I have a thing about even numbers, specifically the number four.
0: Okay. Um, sure, sure.
1: It's one of my like little like obsessive things that I have. And um, when she was born, on the day that she was born, all the numbers were um, a multiple of four. And the exact time of her birth was they was also a multiple of four, so it's okay. like Fair the enough. the most auspicious thing that could have happened to me. Yeah, for her.
0: you personally too. Yeah, I don't know if I don't know. Do, does the U.S. in particular? have some pop culture stuff around certain numbers other than like the obvious sex one i can think of and maybe some other crude things 13 is, it, is a bad Oh, 13 the unlucky yeah friday 13 yeah. there we go that's a good one yeah so we no multiples of 13 then yeah <laughs> yeah that's great well, i mean yeah i think that works for this answer i almost want to force you into picking something you can fit in a pocket that was partially <laughs> what i was imagining too or put in a cap for example, as a bird feather might be, uh, just, to, <laughs> just to give an example off the top of the head. But I think that's a fair answer, because Onion is explicitly that, and every time they encounter each other, John Brown mentions it. So I think that's a very yeah. valid answer. I had a couple of different ways to approach this one. I'll start with the one I would hope. I inherited a watch from my father, who inherited it from his father. Uh, and it's just, it has a simple inscription. I think it says love dad on the, on the backside of it, of the face, but it's a really old mechanical watch, apparently somewhat expensive, kind of a like collector's item type watch. And it still works. My mom very generously once got it, like, you know, took it to a mechanic and had it cleaned up and everything. I can't associate it with good luck though. Cause I have a slightly fraught history with my dad. So it's kind of like, it would be weird if it ended up being good luck for me though, In terms of just a nice item in my life that I'm going to keep around, I think that's kind of like my hopeful good luck bobble or charm item or something. Mm -hmm. Um, I do have a sincere answer when in my life I believed I had one, though, and maybe this was just me being socially trying to seem cool in high school, but I'll tell this brief story. When I played high school football in Wisconsin, obviously it gets cold quickly, so you often have to wear a lot of undergear and like, what do they call that, thermal shirts and you know the really tight... Keep yeah, all yeah, the yeah. heat in. What do, I forget the term for that, but you know what I mean. Long Athletic johns. wear, no, even even more profi- like long johns are for if you're just like laying around the cabin. You know, this is like <laughs> you're out trying to perform. It's you know, it's all the big brands that make it, Under Armour and all that stuff. But yeah. at any rate, so I had one, and our team colors on our high school team were, it was mostly green and gold, and then occasionally we did white and black too. But it was mostly green and gold. And my mom got me this under the long sleeve undershirt fit tight fit thing. And it was gold, kind of like a noticeable, flashy gold. Literally no one on the team had a gold one but me. Everybody always basically got black or white because that's what you get online or at the Nike store or the, you know, Dick Sporting Goods or whatever. Right. And my mom somehow just like from some random venue or avenue... Acquired a golden one and it just looked really cool and I thought it was kind of lucky for a while Like I had a couple others. I had a black one and a white one But I feel like when I wore the gold one we did better. I don't think this held up to the data though to the science I feel Uh. like ultimately unfortunately this was disproven But in my mind when I was thinking of things I believe to be unique and lucky That was the closest I could come up with. I don't know if you ever had a an item in your life like that
1: I'm trying to think. Um not not really. I don't think so. Yeah, it's I- I've always felt like I was like born under a lucky star. Like I believed very much in astrology when I was younger and I always just felt mm-hmm. like I myself was lucky because I was if I wanted something I often would like get it somehow. So,
0: yeah. I'm more for celebrating moments when I believe life has handed me luck, but it's never that an item, I just don't go to then associate that with an item or put that into some kind of pattern or something. Like I've definitely, you know, even small things like maybe you're tight on timing to work one day and traffic goes your way. You just think like, oh, well, you know, this got lucky. Cool. This is great. But I, yeah, having a persistent item in your life is not something I've thought about, but it definitely comes up in the book in a couple of different ways too. So yeah. I do not have that shirt still. That shirt is long gone. Retired, long ago. No need. I'm not playing football outdoors in the winter anymore, so (laughs) don't need the super tight thermal, you know, tops or what have you.
1: You could have repurposed it, made it into, hey, a mask.
0: It was almost definitely donated to the Janesville Goodwill. I mean, I don't think I've had a single item of clothing that was not ripped or dirtied and beyond cleaning that was not donated, so... There's a good chance somebody out in the wild has it, which I would hope.
1: Maybe it's their good luck, bobble now.
0: I hope so. maybe it brought them better luck in performance than I had in high school football, <laughs> though we you know we did respectably, but never we didn't blow the roof off or anything. Let's move to some specific questions now that we've got some you know light banter about the book. Let's dive deep. Uh, we like to begin the book clubs also with each person asking the other one a series of questions, though you know we chime in on both, frankly about the novel, something a little more analytical, a little more thoughtful. Do you want to begin by throwing a question at me or should I keep the pressure on you, Amanda? I'm going to make you choose again.
1: I'll throw it at you. Sure.
0: (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I can take it. Well, maybe, you know, we'll find out.
1: Um, so, okay, you mentioned the dialect being something that you really enjoyed and just the, the mm-hmm. language in general. So uh, I will ask you, Onion speaks with a very particular dialect and the old man, um, who is John Brown, yeah. uh, he constantly refers to the Bible. But he speaks with a different kind of cadence and rhythm entirely, even though the, the framework of the story is that it is Onion relating the story as an old man to a church member. And so it's all in ostensibly it's all in Onion's voice, but even yeah, when he yeah. is giving the the old man's dialogue, it's perhaps with Onion's um words, but the the rhythm of it changes. And then Certainly. there's also yeah. um Douglas's speechifying and then there's Tubman's very quiet force and like forcefulness that's not quite as eloquent as the others. So I was just wondering um, what your opinion was about, like, what roles do speech, dialect, and elocution play in this story?
0: All, I mean, all the roles. I mean, it's just it is the it is the dominant characterizing force of the entire tale. And then, as you rightly noted, most of the major figures in the story, if they are major, get in some way a kind of delineation in the manner they speak, whether it's their vocab, tone just any any number of things. I, to me, the Onion narrative, because it was obviously so dominant, it's a first-person narrative, it is the one that stood out to me, and it was the one I enjoyed the most. Maybe that's simple, though. Maybe it was just because I heard the most of it. One thing I noticed, though, when I was going back, I was trying to pull a quote from John Brown, just because his voice is, is quite striking in the story and he's mm-hmm. really played up in significant ways. So many moments in the story, his big speechified moments are just summaries by Onion. So, like, a lot of it just comes down to Onion's own kind of playful, not lackadaisical, but he certainly isn't as impressed as he's perhaps meant to be by some of the figures around him. And they set him up in some clear conflicts to underscore that. And so... Just the way that he summarizes some of the things that Brown said, and these really, you can tell, would be really epic moments or really long-winded, kind of ludicrous, extreme, you know, pedantic moments. He just sort of, in a very casual, downplaying manner, just kind of like, well, the old man's going off again. You know, that goofball, (laughs) like, can't can't control him. So the whole thing cuts it in a very... I would say respectful because at every moment he's trying to be even handed to. That's the other thing in his characters. He's trying to present it as kind of like, well, I kind of saw it this way, but I kind of get this too. And so, and he does that with, with almost everybody he's in, he encounters, not everybody, but a lot of people get second looks in this story, kind of like second opinions. And so, yeah, I just felt like his delivery of John Brown's big moments was almost the most memorable thing though. Like you said, there's direct dialogue. John Brown does get to go off and say and quote the Bible in, you know, these bizarre ways and have all these moments of kind of these digressions. But really, it was the onion summarizing other people is almost the most enjoyable thing because you get it filtered through his voice, which I found quite charming. Yeah. I'm not sure if you enjoyed that. Yeah. His interpretation of things as well.
1: I definitely did. I thought, and that was uh, part of the reason that I thought that the character work for Onion was just really well done. It's just consistent, but also shows like an eventual growth, personal growth, and everything like that. And and I did enjoy the way that he his perception of the world around him was just really kind of funny and
0: mm-hmm. almost
1: yeah. innocent in ways. Um, which the the changing point being when he saw Pie, the love of his life, Pie getting uh, sexified there.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're we're nailing it with the we're sociologing all these words. <laughs> We've got it going on. We're inventing we're inventing nouns and verbs on the fly. But yes, yeah. we're
1: I'll, English I majors. Can, we're allowed to do that. <laughs> I think so.
0: It's our Shakespearean birthright to just invent exactly. and make up things willy nilly as we see fit.
1: Yep. You're welcome, language. Um, So I just I found that really, really interesting and just kind of surprisingly like refreshing. And I think that it really kept the story light um, overall, even though it has some really heavy themes. You don't feel like you're just being like you're reading a a textbook or anything like that. And I think it's it's because of um, Onion's voice.
0: Well, now you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to transition off of because I had a question about it. Mm -hmm. The specific scene that I think perked my attention up to the novel and alerted me that there were things happening, ideas being toyed with, that were like maybe a surface level deeper than I had... Not not that I hadn't been giving it credit, because the writing is pretty striking and impressive, but that it was playing with some ideas that were not as straightforward as maybe you would think in the beginning. And that was, like you had mentioned, the sexual encounter... I think well, and I'm already like hedging and and pausing and stammering like a fool because you you almost should call it a rape, but then that's the whole twist is that it is presented as that quite clearly right up until the final line of the scene, and then the scene ends, and you're like, wait, you know, it calls into question the entire interpretation that Onion just had of what he witnessed between pie and I forgot the other guy's name that like he was the person meant to control the slave pen outside of the saloon. Darg. Darg. Okay. I thought it was like a noun nickname. Maybe I thought it was like dog or something, but Darg sounds Mm -hmm. that's got the guttural sound you would expect. Mm
1: -hmm. So
0: to me in just in terms of enjoying the story and kind of cruising along, that was just quite a noticeable moment. It was the first time the story really grabbed me in that way and kind of not shocked me, but just alerted me that there were interpretations maybe that I had to reconsider now. What did you think of it? How did it strike you at the moment? How do you interpret its positioning now that the book is done?
1: That, um, that was like the shattering of that, that innocence and his growth from being, because Pi to me so that scene was was really interesting because pie to him is yes he like lusted after her but also he kept saying over and over again up to that point that he also saw her as a maternal figure right yes he did the, the very first like encounter with her the reason that he like all of a sudden throws himself at her is because he she took on a maternal tone to him. And then she, that's when he's like, Oh, mom, mother, mother pie. So that is doubling disturbing for him. Then as a boy growing into manhood, seeing someone that he is sexually attracted to enjoying. like right? I mean, like he's, he knows what her job is, right? but right. he doesn't like, See, see her do it and he doesn't think that she enjoys it, it's just a job, but here she's actually enjoying it. And it's just like a shattering of his his whole world and that's when he becomes a little bit more more hardened to the world around him. I yeah. think so I think that it's a it's a the turning point for him and he even says that it's a turning point for him um in a way where he's now he says that he feels more like an actual man because his heart is broken like a man's. Yeah. Um, And I think that's also like the, the point where he kind of changes his attitude. Like the first part of the book, Every time was, <laughs> he's dressed as a girl, every time he came up on like a slave, the slave would be like, yeah, he kind of looks like Gus Shackleford's son. But that no count person, he's so lazy. Like everybody's talking shit about him.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, like
1: how lazy he is. And he agrees. He's like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. But then right. later we notice like after this scene when he starts kind of like becoming more of a man, he does actually more work and he takes more um not interest, but he does more things to kind of help himself out rather than yeah. just kind of like going with the flow.
0: Yeah. It becomes more active. That's yeah. for sure. Especially at the saloon. I mean, well, he doesn't directly break himself out, but he kind of helps instigate it. He sort yeah. of tries and you know, there's some, there's some Brown family involved too. Yeah. yeah. I thought the scene was just quite striking because it puts in league. These two people who are both considered colored uh, in the, in the story but right. who both I mean this is right after her betrayal that gets people murdered, other other slaves murdered though she's yeah. not a slave, but gets slaves murdered, and it's with this figure who is is a is a black man but also a controller of the slaves that's his job is right. to keep them in line, and so yeah, it just casts authority into a rather. It's something he'll come back to at the end. I found in a way, this thematic parallel and mm-hmm. at the at the scene at Harper's Ferry, which is the cl- very obvious climax of the whole thing of the whole story and for anyone who knows even passing history would have been from the start of the book, which is fine. It b- builds up very well, but yeah, that's the that's the climax but he points out a couple of times in that assault that black people were the first people to die of this. And it was Mm -hmm. not white people who had to sacrifice lives. Like in his attempt to free black, all slaves and emancipate them, he got black people killed and that, so it's sort of, you have these people betraying or not doing diligence to the group they care about. And there's this, yeah, there's this betrayal to your cause or your kind element to it. And that I think is an early moment where it, it calls into questions, the motivations, passions, beliefs of these people that maybe you assume certain things about though. I don't know. I guess the story did set up. She, she really didn't care for other, other folks in a similar position as her, but in worse conditions, she'd sort of seemed, I don't know, maybe corrupted by the position or the wealth or the comfort or something that that's another idea that comes up again and again. Any other is, yeah. yeah? Any other questions you want to throw out there?
1: Oh sure. Um, let's see here. Um, so we talked a little bit about how this novel is, um, at its core, kind of a bildungsroman for for Onion, and but the very first sentence in the novel in the prologue says that it's meant to be kind of a slave narrative. Granted, it is right like right a fiction piece, and it's like built around the frame that this is a slave narrative by a fictional character. Um, but I was just yeah. wondering, like, did the prologue affect the way that you approached the novel? Were, you, were there certain expectations that you had after reading the prologue? And do you think that this could, if it were not fiction, would it have, could it fit into the frame of the slave narrative genre?
0: I think so, though I guess I'll answer your first question first. No, the frame didn't do anything for me because the novel's 500 pages and I forgot page one. Like, I, (laughs) it's a nice little jumping springboard. It's a nice thing to catapult you into it and gives you a little bit of footing before you start. It, for example, will acclimate you maybe a bit more quickly to the manner in which he speaks and the dialect that's being used and everything. It kind of builds in that authenticity right away, Mm -hmm. but Yeah, I don't know. There's something about novel analysis that in moments like that where you think – this one page changes everything. It's just kind of mm-hmm. like I'm. Th- I'm already really skeptical of readings in that sense, but it, it's a pretty clear framing. Is if the frame came up again, maybe I, you'd have to feed me something, you know, <laughs> in the middle of the story to interrupt the frame to give me get me reengaged. But I can't. I, it would be lying if I said I ever thought about it ever again. Once mm-hmm. you know, once I started, just because I yeah, I don't, the the narrative is quite absorbing. The voice is absorbing, so I wasn't thinking back to like, oh, this was found in a church. Oh, I want, you know, no, I'd be lying if I said I thought about it. Though, in terms of being a slave narrative, yeah, I think, certainly. I think it's, and the one thematic kind of richness or you know deeper level to it that i think is worth exploring would be in that genre would be kind of like a reluctant slave narrative which it poses as immediately because Mm -hmm. when he is emancipated he does not want to be he was comfortable with people he knew and cared about he felt safe and cared for and that dynamic between the enslaved and the slavers and slave owners is one that's worth exploring, and I think the novel does pretty well. It, it you know, and this comes up later when he's trying to convince certain um, slaves to betray their masters, and there's this dynamic, very uncomfortable, obviously, between because it's human bondage, but between the controlled and the people who control. Mm -hmm. and exactly kind of the mindset that creates something frankly that you know though the movie was controversial that Quentin Tarantino movie uh Django Django. Unchained Mm -hmm. dealt with that also in a pretty direct way because Samuel L. Jackson's character is I mean in in his violence proves that to be true that he was dedicated to his master over all other things I think unless I'm completely misremembering the end of that story um but yeah so I think it yeah, and I think it takes up an interesting place within that genre. Compare this, for example, to Underground Railroad. Was there even one moment in that story where any of the enslaved had some kind of hankering for the people who controlled them? I don't... Or, like, respect, love, admiration. I don't... No. Throw, out, throw out all the words you want. Like, I don't remember that. If that was in there, it didn't seem like a significant scene. It was total escape, fear, tyranny, which... I think, I I don't know, I'm not going to tell any authors how to approach their stories. That feels like a fitting mood for a tale Mm -hmm. of that type. But this was just a completely uh, different way to approach it with with different thematic strands, I guess. It's maybe an overly long answer. But, yeah, I think it deserves both titles. It's definitely a slave narrative and, to me, definitely a Bildungsroman. So I'm going to say it's happily both. I don't know if you feel that way.
1: Yeah, um, I I do. and. I was more struck with the prologue because, um, going back to it after I read the the novel and, and realized um, that it's it is a bildungsroman, and I go back to the prologue and the last the second to last paragraph in the prologue uh, mentions Onion as like an old man. He's like a hundred years right. old or something. Yeah, like very that. old. And he like got kicked out of the church because he was like. He had fast hands with this little this girl named Peaches, right? And everybody thought that he was a woman before that. So <laughs> I just right. found that interesting because at the end of the novel, he goes off dressed as a man and yeah. like seemingly more mature and stuff like that. But then, like in the prologue, it says that he's still perhaps dressing like a man or dressing like a woman rather because they mistake him for a woman and that he is like fondling gir- younger women like yeah i don't know when well, it could that be really that it could be
0: that he did that when he was younger maybe not though
1: well, i, don't, he got I guess that was much that later right because it was in it.
0: the 40s so this would have been yeah when he was quite old yeah yeah, fascinating. No, I yeah. didn't even call that into question. Though and I'm not sure how this would sit thematically with other ideas and other developments in the story. I mean, does that mean the message at the end was just lost on him then? From John, cuz John Brown's parting message is basically you got to learn who you are, you got to choose, you know, you got to be who you want to be and prove it. Basically. <laughs> and so is yeah. it are we to take from that then that he never fully kind of chose or sunk into anything? That he sort know, of just floated in that in that in-between identity zone.
1: Yeah. It's interesting because he does make the comment after he falls in love with, um, Oh, what's her name? Brown's daughter, Amy. Is it Amy?
0: Oh gosh. Annie. I don't know. Annie. 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 Okay. Yeah. Um, Annie.
1: and, uh, he says like he comes to the realization that he could never fully be a man and he could never fully, uh, be with a woman or, um, fully love a woman, especially a white woman. Uh, because he doesn't know who he is right essentially so he's like made this discovery about himself um but i wonder if that translates into like he really doesn't because he went so long in his formative years as a woman that he just feels more comfortable dressed as a woman and like in the end yeah he he dresses like a guy but that's essentially to escape uh without detection without being detected so it's like for him at the end dressing as a guy is actually a disguise.
0: Yeah, I never I don't I don't think I took the reading that far. I I was just content with it being the odd, the odd sort of narrative plot quirk that made some things in the story kind of go and gave him some mm-hmm. for example it allows the the story to undress Frederick Douglass in a very kind of like uncomfortable <laughs> way. <Yeah. laughs> so it's it just kind of read to me as more of a provocative story choice that opens up some storytelling avenues, I suppose. I just... Mm. But, I mean, at the end, the identity question is asked directly and, you know, is posed to him for that reason, because he'd been hiding for so long. I I guess just some of his decision-making at the end, to me, was contrary. like He reveals himself to his daughter and then runs off. He goes to the battle. He tries to participate. I mean, it's coding him in the masculine ways the story presented, right? That's John Brown splits the men from the women at the battle. That's his whole thing is they right. can't be present. So I think he made his choices. I mean, he also tried to escape with the slaves, but other male slaves tried to as well. So I, you know, I don't, yeah, that the re rereading of the intro does throw those things into question, which yeah I'm happy with those questions floating out there I I read it as a little more wrapped up I suppose than that but yeah I if you wanted to read the sort of uh, romantic lowercase r ending of this then you can just interpret that he you know maybe met up with his daughter again after he survived the battle and got his freedom and all that moved to upstate New York lived a nice peaceful life on the farm or something but that does seem yeah to be contradicted final question I'm going to ask and then we can jump into some quotes um the the most obvious pop culture touchstone for this book felt like Forrest Gump to me, but only in one very superficial way, not in, in any way in terms of humor or construction cuz I I didn't I don't know Forrest Gump doesn't strike me as particularly funny. This novel is p- pretty hilarious at times. Yeah. But it's just in that it wants to throw out a bunch of figures you'll probably know. I mean, let alone John Brown, which who is a name in history that most people from America, who took U.S. history classes, could probably pull that name. At least Harper's Ferry, could. you'd probably have a pretty good chance of pulling that, the context around it, whatever. But it dabbles in other names. So Harry Tubman shows up, Frederick Douglass shows up, George Washington shows up in the form of his nephew, I believe. And mm-hmm. then also Robert E. Lee shows up at the very end, but never, only by name, he's there, but you never talk to him or anything. So did any of those feel in terms of the storytelling narrative, however you want to frame it, the most monumental and kind of interesting, or did any of them not work?
1: Um, Douglas, I think for me was, was the biggest, like what? (laughs) Because yeah, even though, yeah, I took U S history, obviously. And I do recall the name John Brown. We covered it so little and like, Honestly, if we spent time on it, it was probably like half a class, right? Where it's just kind of mentioned yeah, like, usually, yeah, this dude yeah. like tried to hold up the armory and yeah, he, he didn't do a good job of it. Like yeah, <laughs> that's they didn't take essentially it. it that I was taught. So I can and say I had no definitively
0: idea. most yeah. U.S. history classes at the middle school level do the Civil War in about a week, maybe two actually, because yeah. I was part of some of that planning, yeah, because if you're presenting it all in one year's time, that's, yeah, usually you'll do like maybe a week on the Civil War, maybe two. So, yeah, John, John Brown would get, you know, 10 minutes in a lecture in that week, probably.
1: Right. That Like, not, not a whole lot of knowledge mm-hmm. of that. So, seeing that... Um there was a connection between Brown and Douglas. I actually had to look that up because I had no idea. I was so surprised. I was like, they knew each other? What? Is that for real? Well,
0: he wrote so many letters, you know, he was a vigorous letter writer, big, big believer in the USPS. We could have used him this year. I know. (laughs) Really need a defender. And that kind of, we need that level of fervor, you know? Yeah. (laughs) We need his passion back. Um,
1: and then, like, the the description of Douglas was so, like, irreverent, right? And I just, I loved it. I absolutely yeah, loved it. Yeah. I loved how human he is and how flawed he is. Um, I just, I really enjoyed that. And, and I was so surprised. So I actually, because of that particular point in the story, I was like, I have to research all of this myself, so I just like kind of delved into history a little bit more. That's great, be- yeah, because of this book, yeah.
0: That's high and high praise too. If it sparked, you know, further readings, I agree. I thought it was the most fun and fitting. And yes, I we'll get to this in the criticism because I know I read your article that you pulled a very strange but i could see a very light reading of this saying you can't treat him that way that's like a monumental figure who really mattered to abolition and contributed in a real way to which i would just shrug it's it's all human man like he had some fun with it he didn't paint him as a monster you know he painted him as like a Loan, perhaps lonely, horny kind of older man just seemed bored, you know, and yeah. and I guess I, I suppose he did attempt some kind of coming on, I, we can read that if you read that in the extreme, then fair enough maybe he is a monster, but I read it maybe a little little less intensely than that, but at any rate, yeah, I thought it was just a, to me, in the, the way it placed in the story, it's kind of, he comes to symbolize Onion's dislike of those who are unlike John Brown. He wants the he wants the heat. He wants the action. He doesn't trust right. the city folk who talk too much. And that's kind of ends up being the you know if you were reared around John Brown you would believe that too. I pres- you know, you would believe in the, in the action and the heat. You don't want right. to spend too much time talking though. He does that too, but you don't want to rest on your laurels and, and just contribute from afar. And so I think he just becomes that kind of symbol of somebody who, yeah, maybe has more importance in terms of historical remembrance and sort of the way people remember these names and the impact. But onion clearly just, he's in league with Brown believes that, while Brown might not even be very good at enacting his plans, the fact that he's enacting them is the thing. That's the thing that matters the most in a classic way.
1: Right. And I think that's also that respect for action is also um, apparent when he meets Harriet Tubman, who was very much about actual movement of, of people to freedom. Mm -hmm. And so there is, respect there and even a little bit of fear on his part because he knows that she can see right through him right so there's definite respect for her who is not much of a talker in fact like when she does speak it's it's very short to the point and um not full of big vocabulary words or anything like that and it's yeah i think a, a good reflection of onion's opinion of 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 sweet talkers (laughs) no
0: no references to french military strategy or (laughs) roman battle tactics from the empire days (laughs) all that high-minded stuff that some of them get into yep yeah that's for sure that's a fair point yeah i think i think all of them worked for me frankly would be the short version i think i think all of them were kind of fitting it didn't Mm -hmm. it didn't feel that forrest gump way to me, which is just, that is the point of the story. There's so much filling in between that I didn't feel like when those moments came, it was just, oh, another one, oh, another one. It was kind of like, yeah, each one felt like it had its place. So I would compliment it in that regard. Mm -hmm. Let's get into some quotes. Um, We're going to celebrate some syntax here. This is when we deep dive into some of the writing and the style. And usually for the better, usually we try and celebrate because we choose things we believe will like I'll let you start this week Amanda any quotes that you want to throw out there that were really meaningful or interesting
1: sure I'll start with the first one that I pulled it's from page nine in my um, novel and it said "Pa was right proud of his friendship with the white race something he claimed he learned from the Bible son he'd say always remember the book of Ezekiel 12th chapter 17th verse hold out thy glass to thy thirsty neighbor Captain Ahab and let him drinketh his fill. So when I first read this, I actually like laughed out loud because it was just so yeah. ridiculous and funny and also kind of sad. I mean, like he, he does make a point. His, so that was why I pulled this quote is like, he uses humor, but his humor isn't just to, it's not like sidekicky, like ha ha, I just need a joke here. It's, it's funny, but it also makes a point of something. There's always a reason for that particular piece of comedy. And so in this one, he's, he's pointing out that his dad who has this, who believes he has this great relationship um, actually is like kind of the butt of everyone's joke here where he's purposefully being taught incorrectly not taught to read so that he can correct himself, which then further makes him even more of a ridiculous figure to the the people who are in power. So I, I thought right, that, that was really right. interesting, an interesting use of, of comedy um, throughout the
0: novel. And really, going back to the parts with his father in it, it's just perfect that he fell in with a new father figure in Brown, another yeah. person who would probably never misquote the Bible, but would probably miss miss synthesize it like he just he throws passages together that you know perhaps are not intended to be and can kind of bleed them together in a way mm-hmm. so it's not like he's getting the actual information wrong but in a way he's i don't know he's still twisting it and still turning it in a way that maybe it was not meant to be twisted and turned mm-hmm. yeah that's a it's a great quote to show and it shows off the humor in a good way too pretty yeah. literary but not inaccessible i don't know how What what would you rate Captain Ahab in terms of an illusion?
1: I mean, even if you are not familiar with um, Moby Dick, there are so many cartoons and just TV and movies. They they reference Captain Ahab and the White Whale. Like You would know, I think, the name Ahab and can relate it to, like, oh, I've heard that in Futurama or something like that.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Futurama coming in handy As always in the literary <laughs> corner or <laughs> in the literary sense Yeah I'll pull a quote Here that I'll read from when Fre- and I, We said this up front but We're going to spoil the entire book um, When the son of John Brown Frederick dies Kind of it was Onion's closest friend Really only friend at, up to that point when he was Riding with Brown it's also really The first time the good lord bird shows up in a Major way in the story but mm-hmm. after He dies and he's holding the bird that Frederick Is that he killed Frederick's dead the narrative says, "I come out of the clearing in the dusk and took a long look at my old friend in the growing darkness. His face was clear; he still had a little smile on his face. I can't say whether his superstition about that good Lord bird done him in or not, but I felt low standing there holding that dumb bird. I wondered if I should wander some place and fetch a shovel with the aim of burying Fred and the bird together since he called an angel and all, but I quit that idea and decided to run off instead. were not nothing to this life of being free and fighting slavery was how I thunk of it." I was so bothered by the whole bit I can't tell. I didn't know what to do. The idea of running back home to Dutch and trying to work it out, that worked in there too, truth to tell it, and I aimed on seeing to that, for Dutch was all I'd known outside the old man. And then he just ends by saying, he just does nothing, makes no decision, he says, so I sat on the ground next to Fred and curled into a ball and fell asleep next to him, holding that good lord bird, and that's how the old man found me the next day. It's just quite a rich scene, and it's got a couple humorous lines in there, some honest narration. But, I mean, what do you want to unpack first? That he's fetal-like? That he associates not doing anything with girls and not men? That, he, that Frederick was smiling as he died because of the symbol that then will... I mean, it's like the crucial symbol at the end of the story in a very explicit way. It just sets up a lot of things well. There's just a lot of threads you can tug at in a passage like that. And I think it reads really... In a clean way, and it has the, enough dialect to make it not boisterous, but sort of just fun to engage with. But also, it isn't too dense either. It's just well balanced. It's well written.
1: It really is, and it's such a great it's it's a great way to also build sympathy for Onion because at the beginning, um, we see his father die, but his reaction to it, it we don't really get much of a sense. Of, like, yeah, we feel bad for him, but we don't see him being as upset about it or anything like that, right? Because he thinks about himself throughout. And here he is thinking about himself, but he also has a a passing thought of of Frederick beforehand. Which I think is shows how attached he was to Frederick. And so you, when I read this, I felt really, like, sad for Onion and... I, I liked him even more as a character.
0: Yeah, and it builds up, I think, you talked about the Bildungsermann framing earlier. Yeah, That's a great kind of start of journey. I know it's not the 100% the start, but it's right. a great early baseline for where he's at, what he believes, what he thinks needs to happen for his development. He's just an indecisive crossroads of a person. And so, yeah. that I mean, where else do you want a character to start in a journey like that? That's pretty much the ideal starting position is so stunned with indecision that he just falls asleep at it all he can't (laughs) he's so stuck that he can't literally do anything he just curls up like a child like a baby and just goes to bed and so yeah it's i thought that was such a rich moment and i felt pretty sad for frederick and then frankly i wondered how this bird would come back and then it does in a major way maybe even do you think they tease that out for too long Like, it really disappears for most of the story. And then the final line is like, it's almost like a gotcha in a way, or like a surprise. I don't know if that, I don't know if you felt that way, because what it reveals, I mean, it's not a bird I'd ever heard of. So when this, this sort of, what is it, ornithology? Is that the study of birds?
1: I think so
0: yeah like when this little ornithological bit is revealed at the end you shake it and you kind of go oh like oh mm-hmm. that's what they done oh, and then yeah, things click into place but yeah i don't know i, I think it works really well because it it definitely is earned and this frederick feather comes up a couple times but yeah yeah it's a major like symbolic part of the story what other We're quotes definitely. do you want to throw out there what are you thinking
1: um So since you pulled up a a death scene, I'm going to pull out another death scene. Um, Mm
0: -hmm. This is going
1: to be when at the actual Harper's Ferry. Um, Thompson fell into the water. It was shallow water down there. And from where we was, you could see him floating the next morning, his face staring up out the water, his eyes wide asleep forever as his body bobbed up and down, his boots licking the bank. And that was on page 431 in Mm -hmm. mine. So, the reason that I pulled that quote was you do get some, like with Frederick's scene, right? You get some violence here, obviously. Like, Brown is all about action, right? Until the end when he then turns to words, um, specifically words. But, like, the, the action here results in lots and lots of deaths that Onion sees, but he doesn't really, like, like get into the nitty gritty you don't see it he doesn't describe it as like oh there's like blood gushing out of him and stuff like that but you still get a sense of of how gruesome it is and and how terrifying it would have been at that time which is uh very similar to whitehead's underground railroad where we have those gruesome mm-hmm. scenes that are like but they're not to the point of making you like want to vomit right it's it's not something that is overwhelmingly disgusting
0: yeah i don't think a book could ever make me it would make me feel that for like not i don't know i feel like that's a visual thing i only respond to the visual in that in that way but no completely he is reserved in in a it's strange to say that but yeah for for being something you could call tonally brutal it's about as restrained as you could be
1: Right, and I think he does a a good job of of kind of balancing that because if if something is too gory, right, just like with with horror movies and stuff like that. But like if it if something is too gory, you're definitely going to turn people away from from your message overall and from wanting to finish the book, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So I think he does a a really good job of that, and and even in this particular quote, like the the contrast that he plays with is really nice, where you see like. His eyes are open, but he's asleep forever, and uh, his body is like bobbing up and down, and his boots licking uh, the bank. So you see him kind of like almost, when you imagine it, it's almost like floating in the water, like you're relaxed more than you are. dead.
0: Yeah. and with the tension in that scene, it it's not surprising that some of the dead end up being portrayed that way, sort of right. like now you at least get to rest this really ludicrous event and this really poorly planned incident is right. over you don't have to like fight, face this kind of really silly strife that was just never going to go well you know and it's right. kind of you get to move on there's another death in that scene too where the the two people end up on a rock in the middle of the river i thought that was such a again he marries the the com- comedic with the violent in that's right. kind of the whole novel but I thought it was just such a funny image of two people fighting over just a, you know, it's like that image of people fighting over some land that doesn't matter and is completely pointless. And they're just sitting there doing it anyway. You know, they're battling it out, even though it means nothing. It sort right. of had that symbolic feeling of they're just, you had this freed slave and this white man on this little rock Island, just, just fought, fighting it out and they're isolated. And yeah, I just found that to be, it has that comedic, tragic punch going to it. Yeah. It's an absurdist image, but is also, yeah, quite horrifying. I think the line that ends that fight is something like, he blew off his face or something, you know, it's, yeah. so it becomes like, you know, almost hyper-violent in a way, but, you exactly. know, doesn't turn from it. I was going to pull a quote for uh, the pie scene where it ends, she ends with a smile on her face with Darg, though <clears throat> we kind of discussed the importance of that moment already, so I'm not going to read it all, but this is a paragraph he kind of characterizes Onion in, and I thought it was pretty well done. On 188, it says, This is what happens when a boy becomes a man. You get stupider. I was working against myself. I risked being sold south and losing everything because I wanted to be a man. Not for myself, but for Pi. I loved her. I was hoping she would understand me. Accept me. Accept my courage about throwing off my disguise and being myself. I wanted her to know that I weren't going to play girl no more. And for that reason, I was expecting she love me. And then on the next page is when he encounters her having what he believes to be very pleasurable sex while she's being treated horribly. And that is, you know, there's some psychology wrapped up in that, folks. And there there are parts of the Internet you can go to to learn about being dominated and being treated poorly and getting gratification from it. That's, I guess, as much as I'm willing to dive into it because my expertise doesn't go much further than that description, that that (laughs) Wikipedia-like description. But, yeah, I think... Anyway, I think that whole scene, again, just perked me up in such a massive way and really grabbed my attention and made me realize that his, you know, the people he was learning from the lessons that he might have to learn are not going to be as clear cut as perhaps you'd have thought, which I think fits ultimately just with the entire construction. That certainly feels how John Brown feels. It doesn't feel like a man you're meant to walk away from the story thinking only one thing about, you know, right. So that's a great scene. And yeah, clippy little sentences that are kind of fun, but again, never to, and never too overwhelming with the tone of things and the dialect, but you know, just something like you get stupider, you know, just quick. It's very, very biting, very quick at times too. Yeah. Any final quotes? I do have one. I, like I said, I tried to pull one for John Brown. What struck me the most that we've already discussed so much of the great John Brown stuff is Onion summarizing it because Onion gets to be playful about it. He gets to kind of right. dig at him a little bit, which is part of the great fun of the novel, in my mind, anyway. It is, yeah. Any final quotes you want to throw out there?
1: Um, Yeah, I, I had mentioned this quote before. Um, it's after he kind of falls in love with Annie, and it says, I know there weren't no way I could have brung myself to be a real man with a real woman and a white woman besides some things in this world just ain't meant to be, not in the times we want them to. And the heart has to hold it in this world as a remembrance, a promise for the world that's to come. There's a prize at the end of all of it, but still, that's a heavy load to bear. So I pulled this quote mm-hmm. because it shows how mature Onion has become. But also, um, it's like it's it's just one example of. Uh, McBride's use of um, of Onion in order to like point out things about humanity and about the situation that um, African Americans and, and the black community in general kind of still have to deal with the things that they still have to deal with which is the repercussions of, of slavery and it's I just think that he does a really good job of making these points without Uh, something that we've railed against it, like being preachy or like overbearing or just like, okay, I get it. I get it. Um, But he does, because he uses onions, growing maturity and understanding of his situation and his identity to kind of point out how these things are still affecting America. I think that it's really cleverly done.
0: Yeah. It's sort of, I think you nailed it. It's never too preachy. And it does become explicit at times. There are a couple explicit moments when Onion just has to say what he's realizing. But because it's, the whole thing is done in quite a confessional way, and so, I guess you know, literally was some kind of like narrative told. It was a confession of some kind. And so yeah, it just it just works because those moments aren't. Firstly, they're not too common, and they're not overwhelming when they happen. But also delivered in kind of this friendly. Happy go lucky, kind of just surviving, getting by, pragmatic type voice that, mm-hmm. yeah, makes it all a little bit more. Yeah, it doesn't, never makes it overbearing and difficult to read, but you're right. It introduces just another, you know, intriguing historic theme that can be, we could talk about that in the novel in a couple different ways, right? Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a great quote. I, d- I only have one more that I'll share briefly because, again, I wanted to find something with John Brown in it directly. This is when yeah. he's running into an alleyway that everyone's shooting guns in, which is something he does often. It says, yeah, shout out to the rebels who are shooting at us from the slave pen. The John Brown says, I'm Captain John Brown. Now, in the name of the Holy Redeemer, the King of Kings, the Man of Trinity, I hereby orders you to get. Get in his holy name. Get, for he is always on the si- right side of justice. And then Onion observes some stuff, and he says, Looking back, I reckon cannon fuses blood out all the time. But that cannon not firing only give the old man more reason to believe in divine intrusions, beliefs of which he weren't never short. He watched the fuse fizzle out and said, Good Lord, God's blessing is eternal and everlasting. And now I see yet another sign that his ideas, which has come to me lately, is on the dot, and that he is speaking to me directly. And then he keeps going. Yeah, it's it's hilarious. He, yeah. It jumps around. He uses any any occasion of any kind for a digression or a, a sign of holy order in the universe and of his divine mission, as he puts it. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, there's something about—now, you and I were both raised raised in the Christian tradition, as, as mm-hmm. it were. I, there's just something about the speechifying and the kind of elocution of that specific religious group— and I and even within Christianity, there's a lot of different sects and things, and you can look at a lot of different subgroups and whatever and how they tend to do their prayer or their gospel and all that. But there's something about seeing it turned into absurdism that really just hits me in the right way. I, I think <laughs> yeah. it's hilarious. I don't know. And maybe that's all contextual because... I was exposed to some of it, though not in this way, right? Not in this specific form. And there's something about seeing combined, right? With the speaking of the time, seeing him say things like "get in his holy name" is just—it just, just kind of hits in the right way. It's it's both goofy, charming, but also we know he's dead serious, which I guess adds to that feeling. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure what you took away from John Brown's speeches, but
1: I always thought that they were hilarious. I just. <laughs> his rambling nature and stuff and and I looked it up too and yeah he he could spout out like anything from the bible like he had that thing memorized and he was known to have really long yeah. prayers like these are all real things about him
0: <laughs> yeah wild I like here's a and I cuz I know I mentioned this very early I mentioned that there were some anachronisms that I, there weren't enough for me to make like a log about it not that I maybe would have anyway but it was enough that it drew my attention, but not enough to bog it down. He says there, his ideas, which has come to me lately, I seize yet another sign. I'm oh, sorry, is is on the dot. Do you think that was an expression in 1859 that it's on the dot? Well, I don't know. That's it's just question. there were there were little moments like that, and I and I think again, I'm not a historian of this time period or any time period. Just a person <laughs> who likes reading. That's it. <laughs> but. I, it's It wasn't enough to, f- to throw me off the scent or something. It wasn't enough to detract from the kind of accomplishment of the work as a whole. But there were a couple references in there like that that felt like, I wonder if this is period accurate or I wonder if he did it on purpose to sort of i don't know like ease the reader a little bit or give him something to get some almost like slang we would know or hear some kind of idioms we would know or if he just did it without knowing and that's you know whatever that's fine too but yeah there were just little bits like that in there but I i honestly can't say maybe on the dot was an expression from a long time ago
1: yeah i i can't say that i picked up on any of that so
0: yeah small stuff small stuff only so any final quotes i read all three of mine did you do all yours I did. Fantastic. Yeah. Hopefully that deep dive was satisfactory and filled with spoilers for those who are enduring this and just wanted them all. So there you go. We told you a bunch. (laughs) We like to conclude the book club by calling in some critical assistance. We like to consult some reviews or literary criticism on the work that we read. And we pulled from a few different ones. I think yours was the most interesting by far, though mine, you know, they're a little simpler, but they bring up some points like to talk through do you want to begin Mm -hmm. with some points from the one you pulled that looks like from the new york times
1: yeah it was from the new york times and it's by baz dreisinger looks right um so this uh this particular article focused on he compares actually um the good lord bird to Django the movie and also to um mark twain right like so there's, there's that, those three because of the humor, but also because um, specifically with um, Django with um, the the violence, but also interspersed with humor. Um, yeah, right. So, but he does make some interesting points here, um, especially about the way that, um, specifically about Henry. So I'll pull a couple of quotes here. Um, in disguising his light-skinned narrator as a girl, McBride taps into both the long legacy of race, racial passing and the race and gender-bending tradition of American slave narratives. Um, which I knew about like the idea of, of passing as far as race, but I didn't know that there was a gender-bending tradition in slave narratives, but I, I can also say that slave narratives are, it's, it's not my specialty. Um, and I've only read maybe like a couple. So I, I don't, I don't know whether that's a common. Do you, have you noticed that as a common? No,
0: but I feel like, oh man, I wish I could draw some names out of my memory right now, but I imagine I won't be able to, but I definitely remember some stories, slave narratives where people disguised to get by. And that could include, maybe disguising as another gender i i yeah i there's no way i'm gonna be able to think of an example on the spot but mm-hmm. the, the the idea of disguise to get out of it in a sense to kind of like serve yourself survive this escape it by you know by bl- blending in in that way right. does ring true to me also mm-hmm. i'll say though i don't think term in terms of terminology we wouldn't call it racial passing anymore Th- mm-hmm. I mean that is alive as of when I was teaching what four years ago. People tease each other all the time because while two students, for example, I may have had, would both accept that they would call they would call themselves and identify as African American or Black American, the the jo- the kind of intra joking and teasing about skin tone is it's incredibly real. That's like the a common thing to be bullied about. So mm. it's not passing in the legal way anymore. It's not passing. Right in the explicitly sort of codified, codified, like legal sense or manner. But yeah, it's a social construction still that is very rampant and is a thing. And, and I know it's a thing in fashion. I've certainly read pieces about that and so how certain models are cast and it goes on, it goes through Hollywood, however you want to put it. Certain skin tones are preferred and all that stuff. But mm. yeah, no, that's... Yeah, I don't know if we would call it racial passing anymore because passing has such a specific... Meaning connotation, but that broader idea is very much alive. So I'm glad that they mentioned that.
1: Yeah, he and um, I found that interesting too, um, because it ties in with the with Henry with onions, just general like being on the fence or being in between worlds. Like he's an adolescent, right? He's a he's someone who's just beginning to to reach puberty. Um, he yeah, is. Yeah. He was born male, but dresses female, but um, uh, is sexually attracted to females, and then he's also um, uh, mixed racially. It's like all these things that are. He's like being pulled in so many directions as far as his identity, and I just find that really, really interesting, and, and that's yeah that was one of the things that I kept analyzing and that was one of the, my ends for the book, uh, just cause I found that just so, so interesting.
0: <laughs> well, and the quote that the, that critic pulls from the novel, you can play one part in life, but you can't be that thing. You are just right. playing it. You're not real that I think. And I, I know John Brown mentions something like that at the end that's from onion, but right. yeah, that it's, it's such a key theme in the story, which is, you know, do we? And this comes up mostly with the people who are enslaved in the story, the slaves. But it's you know, do we just stay and try and appease people? Do we fight? Right. I mean, this is also in the back half of the entire novel is is part of the plot, which is can we rouse enough people to actually fight this rebellion, or are we just going to be stuck? And right. so, I thought some of the characterization and description of the. I'm going to say this word, which is loaded, but it feels right. Like when the train fails, for example, and all of the Mm. people who had come actually leave because Onion messed up, right? Right. It feels like animalistic, but not, I certainly don't mean that in the heavily coded way it could be used, just in the survivalist way. Like they just kind of bolt into the woods, like, fuck, like, let's just run, you know, which makes all of the sense. It's just sort of a primal survival instinct happening where- Yeah, you can't adhere to other faculties, nor had you been trained to, or prepared to, or told to. You're just sort of, yeah, you're given a simple option of live or die, and so you just, you just kind of go. And that that scene, the de- some of the descriptions around that, how the look on the look on some people's faces or the their mannerisms or behavior, he portrays it in a pretty stark way. That is, yeah, that felt very animal like to me. Um, in that sense, hopefully that came across.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very instinctual, and yeah, I think yeah. that that is something that is played with throughout the novel um, because these, he talks about how John Brown's men, especially towards the end, they're all men of ideas, right? They're all philosophers in some way, right? And right. but they're philosophers that are taking action, granted, but they're doing it for a greater cause, which means that the individuals who get caught up in the middle, it's kind of like, well— it's for the greater good, and so we we see these people who these slaves who are like, uh, I'm not getting in the middle of that. And you have like you could have like a mixed reaction there where you're like, well, he's he keeps pointing out John Brown keeps saying I'm trying to free you, like help. And Harriet Tubman says um, he wants to help you free yourselves, right, and to to free right, your brothers right. and your daughters and your wives and da 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 da. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's this back and forth again about ideas versus like actual livelihood and like, yeah, your survival, like,
0: <laughs> yeah, and they have so, that difficult time in Canada with some of the, the formerly enslaved, the now freedmen right. who have a, more stakes in the world now, just concrete, right. you know, th- financial stakes or personal development stakes or familial stakes. So they, yeah. Yeah, I had more to lose. I like the quote at the end of your article you chose to from the New York Times that says mm-hmm. that the irreverence becomes not a lampooning of champions and calamities, but a new kind of homage. It is homage, I think. It is the yeah. same with the Douglas stuff. I don't know. It's I'm not sure if any one caricature presentation description of any one person like that could fully undo their reputation and i don't know i just feel like if i came out of this thinking that of douglas it seems absurd but i just thought it was clever and kind of unique and it and like you said it provokes new ideas and questions which is probably the best it can do so it does yeah. feel like you know at the end it says it kind of innovates and he comes not to repulse but to exalt and yeah. even even frederick douglas felt like an exalted figure I mean he's in a, like a literal castle eating his king's banquets and everything. So it did right. it felt exultant but you know I think that that portraying that figure in that way was such a choice but uh, for me a pretty effective one at least certainly fun. I, I don't know how about this? the assumed reader for this is a person who probably is at least a little curious about abolition. Then they, Mm. the ergo, they probably believe in it at least a little. I don't, don't imagine any of our current Nazi people living among us for some reason in 2020. I don't imagine them picking up this book and thinking like, I want to see if, you know, like I want to learn more about abolition. Like, so if we assume the reader of this, the assumed reader is even a tiny bit invested in that movement and time then I think throwing Douglas out in that way is just it just seems like a fun fiction thing to do like whoa what a twist like didn't see the you know you need like well I have to reconsider this or you know how does it play with other ideas in the novel I i thought it just worked because I just have to assume the reader would again know his reputation so to to see it tampered with in a, in a way I'm not even gonna say a profound way was mm-hmm. I don't know it just worked for, in the tone of the story for me
1: yeah, it's, um, well, in the same article, he says, McBride sanctifies by humanizing a larger-than-life warrior lands, warts, mm-hmm. foibles, absurdities, and all, right here on Earth, where he's a far more accessible friend. And there he's talking about um, specifically Brown. But also, in the case of, of Douglas, like, we see some of his his faults and his flaws, and it and it gives kind of, like, a reason for why Douglas backed out of supporting... Um, Brown at the end there and and it was one of the reasons why Brown didn't get the uh, the troops that he was expecting there right Um, not only was he did he change the time despite Tubman reminding him several times not to change the um, date but Douglas pulling out also really negatively affected um, his plans too so it's it, it kind of explains something that maybe people didn't think to to kind of ask, like, oh. Because, like I said, I didn't even know that there was a connection between the two.
0: For sure, um, yeah, yeah. So,
1: yeah. It, but it makes both both of those characters more realistic and therefore more relatable. And it also kind of like makes you the reader feel empowered. Like, well, these people are they're, they're just as flawed as me. They're even perhaps sometimes more ridiculous than I am. Right. Right. And, yeah. and look at the change that they've created. Perhaps I too could do something.
0: Yeah. No question. I want to draw a quote, two quotes from a couple other pieces. This one was from Columbia, like the university magazine. And I didn't pull a link on here, that's my bad. But if you Google Columbia Magazine Good Lord Bird, you'll find it, sorry, to the authors of both because I didn't put links this time, my bad. But I do have the quotes. I do have their ideas, which do matter. And they, this one says, The setting of the Good Lord Bird, far from the Deep South in the lawless but slightly less racially oppressive Kansas territory and then later Virginia, is perhaps what makes it possible for McBride to marry slavery with comedy. The characters know that there is a far worse place for blacks people are constantly threatening to send onion to new Orleans or Alabama, which they mentioned where the mm. choice between slavery and freedom wouldn't be so difficult. That I thought was a, a reading that it deserved because yes, the characters do at times, many times actually say like, I don't want to get sent further away. Like it's kind right. of like I made it to the, this sort of limbo zone of, yeah, I'm a slave, but it's, it's, you know, quote unquote, not so bad. And so right. that interpretation is very real in the novel. And I think, This strikes me as a classic problem of people judging history hundreds of years away from it, where you think that position is absurd because it's a moral, we know it's a moral failing and an utter inhumane interpretation of life. But uh, then again, maybe, you know, if you were there, like New Orleans is worse, so okay. You know, humans tend to settle too. There's a human instinct to seek out whatever comforts and build up in any sustainable way you can. So- Yeah, that kind of menace or specter over the whole story. I thought it wasn't something I picked up on as a kind of major idea until I read that, but I couldn't help but agree with it. I'm not sure if it. I'm not sure if that makes the comedy work. Could this comedy have existed in Deep Alabama in a slave plantation or something? I guess not, because it wouldn't have allowed for as much interaction and sort of back. There's not as much push and pull, I guess, in that right. point. So maybe that maybe that point is is upheld or it brings true. But I certainly thought that reading of setting there was a good one and i it was something i noticed i'm not sure if you picked up on that when they mentioned it
1: yeah i did mm-hmm.
0: yeah any thoughts on gosh any thoughts on just the setting and the way they travel between places did that strike you in any way when they, they certainly go i mean they go to boston right in philly yeah. i think or just boston
1: they went to boston philadelphia they went to uh new york as well right that's where the the dude ran off with the money. Isn't that? Oh, okay. That I just
0: read that as all Boston. You know, I just flattened it in my mind, uh, but whatever <laughs> there. Yeah. They, they jump around though. There's, there's some train hopping.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of train hopping. And it, I think that it was meant to be kind of like almost overwhelming how many places he went to. Um, but my favorite things about that was just like how happy, onion was because he got to eat so much <laughs> a lot right, of his descriptions right. and stuff are are around food i don't know if you noticed that but
0: there yeah with the the frederick Douglass meal i think is when it first jumped out to me though he describes what are the other moments of kind of food celebration i'm trying to think of the saloon was there anything in the saloon
1: Rock just the gut. booze
0: yeah, I was going to say the word that comes to me is rot gut. <laughs> yep. Because he becomes an alcoholic temporarily.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Having to drink to get through another day on the job. Yep. Yeah, it's fair. To get over pie. Yeah, right? I mean, no, no better way to cure a heartache and a heartbreak than boozing it up. Don't don't actually do that. Do not take Onion's advice. He was learning. <laughs> he was in his youth. He was, I think, 12 at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, literally, we pulled the quote earlier, and I noticed on a page before when i was trying to find the quote it said yeah i was although i was a boy of 12 at the time i was becoming a man and i just thought oh wow that was was an alcoholic 12 year old um yeah (laughs) in the kansas territories in 1859 it was a different time that's for sure oh yeah one more quote from an npr this was a published piece not on the as far as i could tell not on their radio shows but this was a written piece on their website and it said But McBride... So there's two parts to this. I'm going to read the first and get your thoughts. This is kind of at the end of their review, which was really more of a summary, plot summary than a review, but that says, but McBride adds a darkly comic plot twist that is admittedly hard to wrap your head around. What if old John Brown spent his last four years tending a prepubescent transvestite who became the only one to escape the raid unscathed? Isn't that factually... Well, okay, let's unpack a lot of that. He doesn't tend to him for four years. They slip apart for months and years at a time right so i don't that's just like a misreading of what the story was he doesn't he doesn't tend to him much he lets him accompany him sometimes but not even all the time like they spend months and then years apart don't they or my yeah
1: there were two he even says at one point like that was the last time i saw john brown for two years and then he was with with him when his son
0: died so it kind of solidified him in his mind if we want to get plot nitpicky about it I just didn't think that summary was even that accurate because the tending to tending a like really that's how you're describing that he he does a million other things that he tends to and not her he literally ignores onion at times explicitly because he's doing all kinds of other crazier stuff like looking at maps (laughs) and studying Roman whatever but then it says the only one to escape the raid unscathed. Isn't that also untrue? Don't doesn't he escape with some other slaves and they? It was like a group thing and they they interrogate them and stuff and then let them yeah. go. Also, yeah, he was one of four. Yeah, there were people back at the farm who never quite went, but they were minding the f- like Owen or I don't remember if it was Owen. Yeah, his one son of the sons. Yeah. yeah, and so. It just, I don't know, that paragraph just hit me as sort of, because it, it, then it says, it's a darkly comic plot twist that is admittedly hard to wrap your head around. At no point in the story did I think, now granted, I guess it's its all absurdist, but doesn't that fit with the entire construction going on? Like, It's not like he wrote a deadly series, it's not 12 Years a Slave, right. but there's an impersonator and a transvestite, Like, it's, the whole thing is played for this, and I think it... I don't know. That felt discordant to me. I don't know if that reading sits well with you, but I didn't find it hard to wrap my head around at all. It felt it locks into place really quickly. The voice. Yeah, I the, think it
1: does a disservice to the novel to put it that way. I think yeah, it, it makes it seem like it's more ridiculous than it is. Like as as though he is unable to pull it off. But yeah, I, there was no head scratching for me about anything in here. Right. At all. Right. Yeah. I,
0: now, later in that same review, it said, Yet in McBride's capable hands, the indelicate matter of a befuddled tween from the mid-19th century provides a new perspective on one of the most decisive periods in the history of this country. And so... Sure. I, Onion is rather befuddled and is technically a tween, though. What a strange term to apply to the 1800s, but I guess it's true. <laughs> <laughs> it just feels weird to use it in that context. I don't want to get too reductive, though. I do wonder if this comes down to a simple question that uh, comics and those in the, in comedy these days often ask because of, you know, quote-unquote cancel culture, whatever that is, if it's real. But it sort of comes down to a question of, well, is it really okay to make a joke about anything, right? And th- this is a thing that often gets bandied about as sort of a, I don't even know if it's a high-minded debate, but sort of this inel- casual pseudo-intellectual debate of, well, can can I make a joke about topic X, you know, or, or am I going to get canceled, or is it off limits? And I suppose the thing, and this becomes frustrating with comedy, because having to explain a joke means the joke is just in, in implicitly dead at that point. Right. But I think the tough thing is, I, I think I come down on, yeah, of course anything is fair game. It's the same way I feel about fiction. I mean, it's, I can't imagine somebody pitching something to me in, let's say, a sentence format. Just give me a sentence of what your vision is. And me saying no, but some ideas put a burden on execution more than others, I suppose. And mm-hmm. so, I just think the story executed it perfectly. I don't... Yeah, yeah, like it... Yeah, if you said to me, I'm gonna make a slave narrative about a, a boy who has to d- disguise as a girl and then rides around with a John Brown, who I'm gonna portray as a rather eccentric, unstable old man. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a publisher, so I'm not paying for the pitch or whatever, the, the manuscript. <laughs> It's yeah, but it I suppose I guess the the thing it that paragraph raised in my brain was this really reductive debate that happens which is like, well can I make a joke about whatever I want? And the thing that that, that question always ignores is, you know, if your joke was poor and crass and unsophisticated or uninteresting, Then your jokes can get made fun of, and you might too. I mean, that's the thing. You have to, you have to. The execution has to exist, and I think we've got on in this book like four hundred and fifty pages of just really sublime execution. So exactly. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. A novel like this, I don't know if I'm going to say it like affirms a deep belief I have. I don't even think this belief I have is that deep. But yeah, I've just never thought anything is off limits. I mean. I feel like I've been talking around the classic one nowadays is, um, for example, comedians will say things like, well, I can't make jokes about sexual assault or rape. Like, are you saying I can never joke about it? And it's just, if you're going to pick something volatile, good luck, I guess would be my, you know, good luck and good craft. Hopefully you have great craft. I wish, you know, right. I don't know what that would look like. I'm not the one who's going to look at that topic and think, I have to make a joke about this or I have to talk about this or write about this. But if your brain is so twisted in that way, and you have to, hopefully you can, you know, if you're going to make a joke about slavery, uh, here's 450 pieces of a masterclass on how to do it, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not sure. I know that was a long winded digression, but I don't know if that quote hit you in that same way. If you've seen these kind of casual internet like debates going on but i think the yeah i thought the comedy was quite well done
1: i agree i think that eh, he does a great job of like like i said earlier with, with some of the more gruesome scenes and like the very serious topics like but throwing in the the humor doesn't detract from the seriousness of the theme and of his ideas it Uh, makes it more palatable in a lot of ways. And and it's just really well-written, generally speaking, and it really does well with with characterization.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, I suppose when you have, when you give yourself that amount of time to make something work, 450 pages is a a solid length of a story. It's a long tale, long narrative. and But yeah, it it feels like almost no page on here really missed in that regard. Agreed an impressive, consistent, and really quite funny work that we have here in front of us. And, you know, I know we're going to end the year. We have one more coming up that we'll talk about. We have one more of these book clubs dedicated to Black American writers and authors and experience. Though, in our future endeavors, we kind of have that baked into the mission statement in a way. But, hey, we'll save that for the new year. Don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But the, <laughs> the point being, I think this was such a... Unintended but nice accompaniment to the Underground Railroad. You and I, in the background of this endeavor, talked at least a bit. I know I've I've conveyed this out loud, this kind of worry of just, we can't just pick slave stuff over and over, and there's plenty of it to pick from. I just never wanted to feel reductive in that way and just Mm -hmm. think like, well, we've got to focus on the slavery again, which, um, you know, even the tone of that feels silly to use, but I think it's true. Sometimes you just feel like you're limiting... The, a long history, multifaceted, diverse, intriguing to just here's this one event we got to talk about again. I, and so I just think that we chose two perfect companion pieces. Yeah. This whole thing is just me praising ourselves. I mean, we did well. Yeah. here. <laughs> I think if you gave me these two books and said you should learn more about slavery and these stories are really well written. Great one, too. Just phenomenal. I mean, those yeah. books, They're I think they're probably my favorite two we've read. Maybe not sure if you feel that way.
1: I I actually, yeah, this one is is probably my favorite.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the humor certainly doesn't hurt. I think the ending of Underground Railroad will stick with me for a long time. I (laughs) really thought that chapter with the mom was, like, really top tier. I don't know. I just like being... I like being stabbed in that way, in that way. Yeah. <laughs> I like being punched in that very specific manner. But yeah, I other than that, that will stay with me forever, but I think the tone and tenor of this book will too. I think I'll always yeah. remember the humor. This would be such an easy recommendation on just this book is quite funny and the dialect, it will it just kind of hums along. It's like mm. such a voice, really potent voice. Any final words before we introduce the next book? Any final words on The Good Lord Bird?
1: Uh, no, I'm good.
0: Yeah, we have said it all indeed. Or at least I <laughs> did at the end. Any final thoughts on comedians debating what they can talk about, Amanda, in 2020? Any I, final? I,
1: think that, I think that you make a really great point in that I also believe that, yes, you can joke about whatever you want to. You can say whatever you want to. You have every right to speak whatever. But people also have every right to respond to that. Yeah. And the way that you say it, too, is just as important as the actual words that you're using. Yeah. Um, so th- to the point about comedians, comedians use humor in order to point out certain absurdities in our culture and stuff like that. And I totally respect it. I get that. Um, but. If your joke is not funny, perhaps you should reanalyze it and make it funny. Like, yeah, <laughs> it could be, it's not so much the topic, it could just be your delivery. So, yeah, yeah, completely. I, I totally agree. Execution is this is, is really important. This in that. came
0: to this connection, I didn't make randomly. I just want to say a quick reference to those who have made it this long. Respect to you, we love you. But I, it's because Dave Chappelle is in the news again, he did SNL recently, and I always oh. find him a fascinating comedic figure. He feels like the kind of person who has been insightful enough to kind of say things others can't or won't, or sort of he's good at broaching things that others don't. He doesn't, they don't quite hit it in the way that he does tonally or with the insight he does. So it just raised people. I saw some casual banter about it. That topic with him comes up often. And then I just listened to a podcast interview with a really incendiary comedian named Anthony. I think Jezelnik is how you pronounce his last name, but he's really known for his deadpan totally acerbic like really brutal scorched earth comedy but he's really well respected and seems and he's very seems very inclusive quote-unquote like he seems but because the fire is never you know aimed at anyway i'll let other people explain it better because we're not a comedy show but it just this is just a thing that gets brought up occasionally and there's a lot of let's say these days with this cancel culture talk, a lot of I think false talk about free speech, especially since speech is contextual. And if you're calling yourself a comedian, you've entered into an art form, and to me that that is kind of the important barrier of like, yeah, try whatever. You know, All again, right. I I feel like I'm a big shoulder shrug. I it's just that some things have a higher bar to clear. So good luck I don't, if you think you have the chops to write a 500 page like hilarious slave narrative i've (laughs) i wish you well i don't you know yeah yeah, i'm not going to stand for some lesser work than this so i just thought yeah this is just such a good monument to how to marry those two things again didn't Mm want to i don't know i'm not going to say to affirm that belief in me or something but it's an interesting example why don't we set up our next book though amanda because we do have one final book club for december coming up in this specific collection and pursuit we've been doing and then you know as we begin new things next year we'll talk more about those goals in the future what is the next book what are we reading and why'd we pick it
1: um the next book is called don't call us dead by i believe his name is Dennis smith mm-hmm. yeah <coughs> excuse me um and this is actually a poetry collection and it's a national book award finalist mm-hmm. um it's pretty short it's only like 80 80-odd pages, Um, and the reason that I chose this is I wanted to – we've been um, doing mostly novels, and I've been trying to – So, we did also the short story um, anthology, which you guys can go back and listen to that to see how we felt about that, and I I wanted to include something um, that had poetry in it um, because we have not analyzed – um, black american poetry yet um, even with the um, penguin classic stuff it's been yeah, yeah. Um, mostly white folks um, there yes, so
0: loads and then however <laughs> yeah. you categorize the greeks and romans i don't even yeah who knows i don't think we can apply whiteness before a certain time period and in it's institutional understanding but yeah i don't <laughs> yeah whatever you yeah, want yeah. to call them yeah I don't, we've got like old scots in there there's then some Norwegians or something, but yeah, Russians, lots of Russians.
1: <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, so it's, it's. so I wanted to do some poetry and um, I found this one just kind of like looking around and uh, it looked really interesting and um, really high praise for it. So I thought that this would be a, a
0: pretty good choice it is a perfect ending because it'll close the loop on in terms of form and style we've done a couple novels we've done short stories we've done nonfiction. so Mm -hmm. in a sense it's kind of the perfect culmination moment i mean i think maybe close on this thought or a similar thought but i think rounding out your reading every year with some poetry is still valuable it's not certainly not the the trade of or the what is it coin of the realm these days lit in a literary sense it's certainly not the dominant form and that's okay but i still think it's worth exploring and digging into some poetry so yeah 90 pages of poetry i mean yeah it's short on the page count but who knows what density will await have you started yet i I admittedly found out we're doing it tonight because you know we give a month to prep for these so it's fine but yeah i haven't bought a copy yet have you started
1: Um, I have not. Okay, Um, But I can tell you that um, it looks like he plays a bit with um, structure, so I think it'll be pretty interesting. I'm assuming
0: you mean um, on-the-page physical layout? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That should be interesting, then. Let's get the Ezra Pound homies out there, the E Cummings (laughs) people. Let's wake them up. (laughs) (laughs) Alert yourselves. Yeah. What do they call it? Stir the hive from Good Voice. Let's stir the hive. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yep.
0: Yep. Let's stir the the... Yep, we're hiving the bees. If you are a E.E. Cummings bee out there, we are hiving you. Please respond to our call. We're putting the signal out on the internet. (laughs) Hear us. Anyway. All right. Yeah, we enjoyed The Good Lord Bird an awful lot. recommend it to just about anybody in your life who is literate. We hope that they can read this and enjoy it. And until next time, we will see you between the pages.